Okay, um, I'm actually not going to go over the disciplines review with you today. Liz Jackson is going to do that, and she's here. Um, we're going to have some of our discussion group leaders lead the disciplines review this semester. So, um, and then after that, Melissa will come up and teach. So, Liz, you can come on up if you're ready. And you guys can pull out your notebooks. And I'm going to read this morning because it's my first time doing it. And... Um, Actually, I don't have prayer at the beginning, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us this morning. Father, thank you. You are so good. Thank you that you have brought us to know you, Lord, that you have revealed your son to us. Thank you for your word that we have, that we can even come together and study it. Lord, we pray this morning that you'd open our hearts and our ears, that we would be um, effectual hearers, that we would be doers of your word. God, would you bless this time? Lord, be with the women in our um, child care. Lord, be with those that aren't able to be here too. Lord, we just pray for them and pray that they would continue to uh, seek you as they're at home. Uh, Lord, we pray for healing for those that are sick. Lord, and we just thank you. We thank you again for the blessing it is to study your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start today by telling you about my mom. Um, my mom was a believer. She was a pastor's wife who helped my dad in ministry by leading the women's ministry. She played the piano for our church, and she put together holiday programs along with vacation Bible school each summer. And she also raised 13 children. Um, she miscarried once, but she had eight boys and five girls, and there were no multiple births. She had each one, one at a time, and when everyone else was, went to school and work, I stayed home and watched her serve because I was the youngest of 13 and I wasn't old enough to be in school. Um, she'd wake up early to start lunches and she'd make everyone breakfasts. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Then there were the piles of dishes, uh, kind of like, you know, the dozen movie. What's that called? The Keeper by the Dozen. Yeah. And they needed to be washed, and loads of laundry also needed to be washed. And we had a washer, um, but drying the clothes meant hanging them on the clotheslines every day. Um, the piles of dishes were hand-washed, and I thought she was the best ironer in the world. Um, she would even iron our bed sheets and our pillowcases. Um, she was also an amazing seamstress, and she made a lot of our clothes and she also did the church play costumes for Christmas. <laughs> she was taught by her mother that they'd have a clean home, even, even though they were really poor. And chores were always a part of our day. Um, she had a green thumb and always an amazing garden that produced laundry baskets of vegetables and fruits. And she was an amazing cook. She even taught a cooking class at the after-school girls club and also clean homes on the side. I thought everyone's mom knew how to cook. I know now why our friends surprised us and showed up at dinner time. <laughs> and we didn't have much food, but my mom and dad always invited those who showed up to join us for dinner. We had an old fashioned home, so us girls were always in the kitchen getting food ready for our dinner. I remember asking her how we were going to feed everyone with such a small amount of food. And she'd gather us girls and pray for God to multiply the food. Hmm. We seem to always have leftovers on those days. James 1.9 says, But the brother of humble circumstances to glory in his high position. And we were privileged to see God work in our humble circumstances. And this caused my faith to grow. You may wonder how she was able to do all that she did. My siblings and I still marvel at how God used her and how she seemed joyful and happy to serve whenever she had the opportunity. And my mom was not sinless. She was in a mixed condition, like all of us. The process of progressive renewal in Titus 2, 11 to 14 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, 
and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And this was my mom. By God's grace, she was doing what God had for her to do by being yoked to Jesus and doing the work that he had set out for her to do. Well, after everyone was gone to school and work and the dishes, laundry, and chores were piled high, Mom made it a habit to first sit at the table with her Bible and spend time shepherding her heart. Um, I had the privilege of having her live with my family the last 13 years of her life. And she still had the habit of having her Bible open on the table. And she still tried with all her might <laughs> to serve us whenever she could. She was 99 years old when, she, uh, when the Lord took her. And Psalms 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. What an example she was to me by just living the Christian life as she pointed us to Jesus by sharing gospel truths, making God her first priority in serving and loving him by serving and loving others. So please turn your notebooks and let's read our Wellspring verse on the upper right corner says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. Uh, would someone uh, please read our purpose? Go ahead, Diane. Oh. Yeah. Um, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Thanks, Leah. Do you want to read, um, <laughs> please, if you'd read Discipline 1, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Thank you. Uh, can someone read Discipline 2, the home, please? The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with a heart fixed on God and his word. Thank you. Uh, someone for Discipline 3, the ministry. With a heart fixed on God and seeking for God to administer in our home of priority, faithful women of God step into the church in every part of life to shepherd others for God and the gospel. Thank you. Okay, um, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 10. Uh, Hebrews was written in Greek and it's almost certainly addressed to a strictly Jewish audience in the first century AD, and it's at an unknown location, an unknown author, but we know that the A, capital A author is the Holy Spirit, and the book explains a better way of the new covenant in Christ compared to the old covenant given to Moses. And at that time, Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah were being persecuted by non-believing Jews, and it would have been a temptation to go back to family and what had been familiar to them. And so Hebrews them, encourages them in their persecution, gives them confidence in the new covenant. It's superior and better way that Jesus Christ has accomplished through being our high priest and being our perfect sacrifice for sin once for all. So in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, the writer gives believers three commands that pertain to shepherding our hearts in ministry inside the home and outside the home. So please read along with me. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest 
over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So notice the command in verse 22 to draw near to the holy presence of God. This is discipline one, shepherding our hearts with the gospel. And then the next command, look at verse 23, where it says, hold fast the confession of our hope, which implies living out our hope. We can um, come before Christ and live it, live out our hope. And even in our home and in dependence on the faithfulness of him who promised. And wherever we go, actually. Now give your attention to verse 24, instructing us to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This command applies to our words and actions both inside and outside the home, the D2 and D3, for the encouragement of those we come in contact with. So I'm going to um, end by praying the, this scripture for us. So um, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our high priest and savior, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice that allows us to come into your holy presence. We put our faith in your forgiveness, our sins atoned for by your blood. Oh, may we count it a privilege and a joy to be eager to know you according to your word. May our love for you continue to grow. As we shepherd our hearts through your word, may we draw near with sincere hearts and full assurance of our faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In our homes, May we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for you who promised are faithful. In our homes and in our ministry, may we consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day of being face to face with you drawing near. We thank you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a joy and privilege it is to be able to come before you to open your word. Your word is powerful. It is deep, and it is full of every truth that we need for our lives. God, I pray today that as we sit here before your word and hear what you would have to say to us, that all of us would do so even today with... Um, a teachable heart, understanding that we have much to learn, much to grow from, to be more like you. And God, I do pray that um, your word would work powerfully through us this morning, that we would just be thankful for this privilege we have to come together um, and to hear what your word has to say. In your name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so if you're from the South, Gretchen might know this, or spent any significant time in the South, you might be familiar with a plant called kudzu. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. My sister lives in Virginia. I asked her, and she was like, oh, yes, we know what that is. <clears throat> so some people refer to it as the vine that ate the South, and they say that it is unkillable. And if you do go, you'll probably see kudzu growing on everything from fields to trees to telephone poles to abandoned barns. Um, here's your botany lesson for the day. Kudzu is a semi-woody perennial climbing vine from the pea family. I don't really know what any of that means. Um, <clears throat> but it can grow up to 60 feet a season. That's incredible. Uh, in the United States during the late 1800s, there was a lot of interest in Japanese culture and in food and plants. And kudzu is a native plant to Japan. It was first showcased in the United States at the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition. And farmers in the U.S. at the time 
um, had planted it in hopes of feeding their livestock cheaply. In fact, in the 1920s, the Georgia Railway gave out free kudzu to farmers. And in the 1930s, the government raised 100 million kudzu seedlings, giving them to farmers and railroad companies and highway departments in the South and paid them up to $8 an acre to plant those seedlings. <clears throat> the US Department of Agriculture at the time wrote, there is no danger that kudzu will become a pest. True, the growth, if uncontrolled, will make a tangle of vines likely to smother bushes and even small trees, but in fields, heavy, heavy grazing or cutting at once reduces the stand and weakens the growth. So left undisturbed, the kudzu was planted along southeastern highways and rail railroads, and that grew quickly into adjoining fields and forests. It grew up utility poles, pulling them down and causing shorts, it also grew across railroad tracks that it was supposed to border. And then as trains ran over it, it broke down into a slippery goo that could do everything from slowing down the train's progress to causing derailments. Its root system and slow germinating seeds meant that it could crop up again in places that people thought it had been removed. It would often establish another foothold before anybody really noticed. In 1982, the US government declared kudzu a weed and in 1997, it was added to the Federal Noxious Weed Act. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature has listed kudzu as one of the worst, 100 worst invasive species in the world. Many states now have laws outlawing the planting of kudzu. So, probably see where I'm going with this. If you read the title to today's lesson, you're probably putting it together. Pride kind of like kudzu, <laughs> the world would tell us, pride's okay, it's not going to cause any problems, but we know differently, don't we? <laughs> pride, if left unchecked, won't pull down utility poles or derail train cars, but it can destroy relationships, and it isn't glorifying to our Lord. And I would say from personal experience, sometimes I think I've rooted out pride in an area, and unbeknownst to me, it comes cropping back up again. Unfortunately, in our world today, and in many churches, talking about sin in general, and specifically pride, isn't very popular. In fact, psychology today <clears throat> says that pride is often driven by poor self-worth and shame. We feel so badly about ourselves that we compensate by feeling superior. But as believers, we know we get truth from the pages of scripture, not from the pages of psychology today and not from other people's opinions. And only in God's word are we able to find the sure, unchanging truth that we need. Psalm 19.9 says, the judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. So that is what we are going to do today. We're gonna to spend about an hour looking at what God's word has to say about the danger of the sin of pride, about humility, and about how we, in our mixed condition, can and are commanded to kill pride and cultivate humility. Much of what we're going to talk about today was taken from a book called From Pride to Humility by Stuart Scott. This is my first plug in recommending you read that book. <laughs> there will be more. Um, this has been such a profitable study for my own heart. Um, I was sharing this this morning in the prayer meeting this morning and just, I started studying for this lesson back in June and I knew there would be a lot of conviction during the process. I mean, you're studying pride and humility but I knew that I was a very prideful person <laughs> and I had much to learn about cultivating humility, but I really had no idea just how convicting it would be. <clears throat> so I stand here today, as Tom Angstead says, if you've ever heard him say this, just one beggar showing another beggar the bread. And it's really easy to wallow in my own failures, but I must remember that I'm not condemned because I'm in Christ Jesus. So most likely after today, you will have an increased, increased awareness of your sin because the truth of the matter is all of us have the residue of pride in our hearts. But there's hope, right? God will finish the work he began in us and that is an encouraging promise for us to not grow weary. So let me start by asking you a question. Do you see yourself as a prideful person? Or maybe you've been sitting here this morning thinking of someone else who would benefit from this lesson? Pride's pretty easy to identify in other people, isn't it? We all know that proud person, right? 
the one who posts that humble brag on social media, or the mom brag, or even the kid who says, my dad is stronger than your dad, or the one who only talks about themselves, or never remembers your birthday, or asks you how you're doing, or always must tell you what you're doing is wrong, irritatingly, just like us. So as easy as it is to identify in others, it's just as difficult to identify in ourselves. Our hearts are prone to deceive, and our hearts are prone to being deceived. So maybe a better question than, am I a prideful person, would be, where am I a prideful person? We all fight that sin of pride. Stuart Scott refers to pride as the epidemic vice, meaning that it is everywhere, and it manifests itself in many ways. So I'm going to read a few questions just to get our juices flowing and our thinkers thinking. This is adapted from Nancy Lay DeMoss, who's now Nancy Lay Wogelmuth. Um, she has a list called 41 Evidences of Pride. I'm just going to read a few of them to get us thinking today. But I think this is a good place for us to start to answer that question of where am I a prideful person? So answer these honestly in your own heart. You don't have to raise your hand if they apply to you. <laughs> it's okay. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you frequently criticize or correct your husband? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, or how disciplined you are, or just how much you can accomplish? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Do you tend to be controlling? maybe of your husband or your children? Does your husband feel like he can never measure up to your expectations of what it means to be a good husband? Do you often complain about the weather or your health or your circumstances or your job or your church? Do you get hurt if your accomplishments or acts of service are not recognized or rewarded? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help? When is the last time you said these words to a family member or a friend or a coworker? I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? That's hard. Are you sitting here thinking about how many of these questions apply to someone you know? Or maybe you're feeling pretty good that none of these questions actually apply to you. These are difficult questions. Yeah, they hit kind of deep. So my prayer today is that we all, all, I've gone through this lesson many times. It's, I need it every day. By God's grace, that we'll see our pride as God sees it, and that we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord to become more conformed to his image, because that's the sanctification process. So let's get started. The first section on your outline, number one, is pride. <laughs> We've already talked about how the world defines pride. But let's look at what God's word has to say. So turn to Mark chapter 7. On Sunday mornings, we're in Mark. We're not here just yet, but we will be pretty soon. So we're going to start um, Mark 7, and we're going to start looking at verse 21. <clears throat> For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, did you see pride in that list? Where does pride originate? In our hearts. That's right. So this goes back to the lessons that we've heard about Discipline 1 and our Wellspring verse which um, Liz read this morning, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If you are a believer and you are in that mixed condition, remember like Smed said, you can and you must shepherd your heart. So how do we shepherd our hearts? This is review with the word of God, right? We need to be continually exposed to God's word at the heart level to prevent ourselves from lifting ourselves above others in pride or to prevent us from thinking we are somehow above others around us, <clears throat> that maybe we have more knowledge or we deserve more honor. 
The serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve with pride, their desire to be like God, and they were cast out of the garden and they were cursed. So pride isn't simply how we see ourselves, but it's more importantly how we perceive ourselves in light of who God is. John Calvin wrote, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. And where's the best place to find out who God is? The word of God. We are so very far beneath God and so totally unworthy. We're going to be moving around a little bit uh, in the Bible today, so turn to Psalm 8. All right, Psalm 8, we're going to start in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So we are all born desperately wicked and totally incapable of anything worthwhile. And before we are rescued, there's absolutely nothing good that we can do. We have no worth in and of ourselves, but God loved us anyway. We are low in comparison to God, and therefore we should serve others with this same lowly mindset. Very familiar verse, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. This had to come up some point. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, Pride is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. It is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. So we're going to move down to our definition of what pride is. <clears throat> and this definition comes from Stuart Scott's book, <laughs> From Pride to Humility. Um, this is how he defines pride. The mindset of self. So that's a master's mindset rather than a servant. It is a focus on self and the service of self, a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation, and a desire to control and use all things for self. If you missed it, all the blanks are self. (laughs) All right, we're going to move again to Romans. Romans 2. We're going to start, um, I want to look particularly at verse 8, but we are going to start at verse 6 to give a little uh, background here. Romans 2, starting in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And here's verse 8. This is what I want to look at. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is serious. The prideful person is focused on self, the worship of self. Pride is competitive toward others. It's competitive toward God. And it wants to be on top. Thomas Watson again said, pride seeks to un-God God. And he said, there's no idol like self. The proud man bows down to this idol. The prideful person can also be caught up in self-pity. They're not concerned with the glory of God. They're not thankful for what God has given them. And instead, they're just focused on what they missed out on or what they've been passed over for or what they drew the short end of the stick on. This self-pitying, prideful person is still focused on themselves and they want their glory and their recognition. They want to be elevated and esteemed 
and they believe life is all about them. In Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, he talks about four areas of pride that can rear its ugly head in our lives, and we might not even see it. So we're going to talk through those really quickly. Pride can display itself in a moral righteousness. So this is someone who believes they hold the moral high ground when it comes to education or politics or nutrition or anything else our sinful hearts can devise. And because this person's not committing flagrant sins, like drunkenness or abortion or something really scandalous, they feel morally superior. And then they look down with disdain on other people. This area of pride is so prevalent that I would venture that most of us do this to some extent, and we must fight that. Psalm 51.5 says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We need to see ourselves as the worst of sinners. Then there's the pride of correct doctrine. This is the assumption that my doctrinal beliefs or those of my church are correct, and anyone who holds a different theological belief is somehow inferior. Now, as a caveat, we should aim for doctrinal beliefs that line up with Scripture. But do we do so with love or with pride? And then there's those who don't regard doctrine as important at all and can look down on those who do. 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul talks about this form of pride. He's talking about food, eating food that's been, been offered to idols. And he gives a warning to those who thought it was okay to eat that food. He said, your knowledge puffs up. So hear me correctly. I'm not saying we shouldn't hold doctrinal convictions. I'm saying Paul warns us to hold those convictions with humility and with love. Another aspect of pride that Bridges mentions is the pride of achievement. So we're supposed to work hard and not be sluggish, <laughs> and often that hard work results in success. And maybe it's successes in areas like athletics or business or finances or academics. But we must remember that each of those successes we experience are from the sovereign hand of God. So to be proud in your own hard work and achievement is really just to rob God of his glory. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who considers you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Can't we all be guilty of this? Boasting about our children's or our husband's successes without giving credit to God? Failure to acknowledge that those achievements come from God leads to pride in our hearts. Lastly, Jerry Bridges talks about the pride of an independent spirit. This is expressed with an unteachable spirit or a resistance to authority. Have you ever seen this in your own life? I remember before I was a parent, I would think things like, I'll never do that when I'm a mom. <laughs> That's pride. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the uh, example of a prideful person that we can find in Scripture. We're going to turn to the book of Daniel. Um, we're going to look specifically at chapter 4. <clears throat> If you've been attending Sunday evening services, you're probably somewhat familiar with this book, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of a background. <clears throat> so King Nabopolassar's son rose to power in 604 BC. Under his rulership, Babylon became the greatest cultural, commercial, religious, and political center of Southwest Asia. He beat Necho II of Egypt, and after that held a string of victories that made him truly the master of the civilized world for 43 years. And one day, this mighty king was walking around his palace in Babylon, and he said, and this is Daniel 4, verse 30, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Well, I think I would step back from him a little bit at that point. I think we would all agree that this man is very prideful. And remember our definition of pride that we talked about earlier? This king had a mindset of self. He was focused on himself. He pursued his self-recognition and self-exaltation. Have you ever seen this in your own life? Maybe you don't have a grand palace <laughs> that you walk around and boast in, but maybe it's boasting in your well-behaved children or your well-organized home or your handle on fitness 
and nutrition, or your ability to plan phenomenal parties, or your knowledge of scripture, or your gifts and abilities, or your new car, or your trendy clothes, or the fact that you don't care about trends and fitting in. There's lots that we boast in. All right, let's go back to our proud king. You've probably figured it out by now, but the king we're talking about is King Nebuchadnezzar. And as he's walking through the palace, and as he's boasting, in fact, the Bible tells us in Daniel that even as the words were in his mouth, a voice came down from heaven. So look at verse 31. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Okay, so can you imagine this? Nebuchadnezzar, he's at the height of his glory and his power, and he verbally expresses what was already in his heart. He thought very highly of himself. He was so very impressed with himself. And while the words were still in his mouth, God spoke. And immediately, this kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar thought he had made, which we really know was from the Lord, his kingdom was gone, just like that. And not only would Nebuchadnezzar not have his giant kingdom to rule, he was also driven to live in the fields and eat grass like a cow. And later in this chapter, verse 33, we read that his body was wet with dew, his hair grew like feathers, and his nails like claws. That's humiliating. Now, the chapter doesn't end here, but we already see the danger of a prideful heart, um, and we see the danger of what happens when pride is left unchecked. And... We've seen that very disastrous results can happen. But, praise the Lord, we have the rest of the chapter. So look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So that's a really great end to the example that we see of this prideful person. He repented. He was humbled by God, and he praised God for who he is and for what he does. So do you see that connection between the proper view of God and the proper view of self? and how that's so closely connected to pride and humility. Um, on your notes, there's a, an addendum sheet, and on the front it should say 30 Manifestations of Pride. This is also taken from Stuart Scott's book, From Pride to Humility. Here's my second suggestion to read it. <laughs> um, I'm going to read them through. In Stuart Scott's book, he recommends rating them from 0 to 5, 0 being this is not an issue in my life, and five being, this is a pretty dominating issue in my life. So I'm going to read them through, and I'll read through some of the verses. We don't have time to get to them all, but maybe do some of the ratings on your own. You're not turning this in. You don't have to show it to anybody. You can even cover it with your hand if you want to, but this is really just for ourselves. All right, so the prideful person is characterized by complaining against or passing judgment on God. The prideful person is characterized by a lack of gratitude in general. Listen to this verse from Hezekiah, or from 2 Chronicles. This is Hezekiah. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. We need to be thankful for all things right? The prideful woman is characterized by anger. Another word for that would be someone who's moody. A prideful woman sees herself as better than others. 
maybe getting easily bothered by differences in others and having a little tolerance for them. Number five, the prideful woman has an inflated view of her importance, her gifts, and her abilities. This is back to the verse we read before, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Where do our gifts and abilities come from? They come from the Lord. The prideful woman is focused on the lack of her gifts and abilities. Do you ever have that woe is me attitude? The prideful woman is a perfectionist. Number eight, she talks too much. And number nine, she talks too much about herself. Galatians 6.3, I love this verse. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Number 10, the prideful woman seeks independence or control. Have you ever thought or maybe said out loud, I don't need anyone, or it's my way or the highway? Pretty sure I have. Number 11, the prideful woman is too consumed with what others think. Galatians 1.10 is the verse written there, for I am now seeking the approval of man. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Number 12, the prideful woman is devastated or angered by criticism. Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. We don't want to be scoffers. The prideful woman is unteachable. Number 14, she's sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading with her words. And then she excuses it by saying, oh, that's just the way I am. It's my personality. The prideful woman is characterized by a lack of service. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. The prideful woman has a lack of compassion. Number 17, she's defensive or she's blame shifting, always blaming some, someone else for things. Going along with that, she has a lack of admitting when she's wrong. Proverbs 10:17: whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. We want to heed instruction. The prideful woman has a lack of asking for forgiveness. Number 20, a lack of biblical prayer. The prideful woman resists authority and she's disrespectful. Number 22, she often voices preferences or opinions when she's not asked. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The prideful woman minimizes her own sin and her shortcomings. Uh, Matthew 7 is written here, and this is... Um, probably pretty familiar. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And this goes along with 24. Not only does she minimize her own sins, she maximizes others' sins and shortcomings. The prideful woman is impatient or irritable. This would probably also be being inflexible. Number 26, she's jealous or envious. And this includes failing to be glad for other people's successes. Number 27, she uses others. She's not focused on ministering to others, but more so what she can get from them. She's deceitful. She covers up her sins and her faults and her mistakes. And she uses attention-getting tactics. Maybe it's how she dresses or how she talks or she acts. Or maybe it's that she's always talking about her own problems. Number 30, she is 
characterized by not having close relationships. Proverbs 18, first two verses, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. We need to be part of the body. So looking back at your ratings will give you a good place to start on becoming more Christ-like in your walk. Um, You're going to see this list pop up again in your homework this week, asking you to look up a couple of the reference verses that you marked, and just to see what God has to say about these attitudes that we're all striving to put off. So now that we're here, and we're starting or maybe continuing to see this sin of pride in our lives, it's tempting to want to move on too quickly. (laughs) At least it is for me. (laughs) But we must stop and agree with God about who we are, about the abomination that our pride is. We need to confess it and repent by humbling ourselves before a holy and just God. All right. So if pride is the epidemic vice, like we talked about at the beginning, then humility is the endangered virtue. So number two on your outline is humility. There are several times that the Old Testament refers to humility, and they most, most of those times refer to bowing low or crouching down. In Hebrews, or in Hebrew, this refers to the one who is of low eyes. <clears throat> A humble soul has lower thoughts of herself than others have of her, and a humble soul values others higher than herself. Thomas Watson, in The Godly Man's Picture, says, The more knowledge a humble Christian has, the more he complains of ignorance. The more faith, the more he bewails his unbelief. So a humble woman has low esteem of her duties, or her service, or her abilities. The humble woman is a Christ magnifier. She can also bear reproof well, and she's eager to do it. The humble woman desires for God's glory to be increased, not her own. Thomas Watson says, the humble man, or the humble woman, knows that the worst peace God carves for him is better than he deserves. And therefore, he takes it thankfully upon his knees. The humble woman places her entire dependence upon God. Now, the greatest example of humility in Scripture can obviously be found in Christ himself. And although that that word humble that we use doesn't actually occur in Scripture, um, the humility of Christ is clearly revealed. So turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at chapter 2. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So think about what Christ had in heaven. Glory and honor and worship and majesty. And in an amazing act of humility, he came down to earth. He was God, but he was in complete submission to the Father. And he became the servant of men. When he came to earth, he was fully human, meaning he got hungry, he got tired, and he probably stubbed his toe, and maybe he got a headache. He suffered at the hands of men. He was persecuted and killed as a criminal by crucifixion, which is the most cruel and degrading form of death ever devised. But Christ's humility became our salvation. Andrew Murray puts it this way. He was nothing that God might be all. He resigned himself to the Father's will and power that he might work through him. And that is who we are commanded to emulate. All right, let's go back to our definition of humility. Humility is the mindset of Christ. So that's a servant's mindset. A focus on God and others. 
a pursuit of the recognition and exaltation of God, a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things he has given. So humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position and yielding to God his place. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humble people have no need of recognition or self-elevation. They know they've been undeservedly forgiven. So they elevate God and they encourage others. So again, Andrew Murray, this guy is so full of wisdom. Andrew Murray says, The root of all virtue and grace, of all faith and acceptable worship, is that we know we have nothing but what we receive, and we bow in deepest humility to wait upon God for it. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, here we go, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So just as we did in our pride section, on your notes, you're going to see 24 manifestations of humility. It's on the back side of the, the pride one. And as before, while I read them through, you can rate them zero to five, zero being this aspect is not present in my life, and five being this aspect is predominantly present. So I'm going to read them through in some of the corresponding passages, but again, you'll get some time later in your homework to look them up. <clears throat> so the humble woman is characterized by recognizing and trusting God's character. The humble woman rehearses God's character often, and she trusts God and will even thank God for what he's doing in a trial. The humble woman sees herself as having no right to question or judge an almighty and perfect God. Number three, the humble woman focuses on Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> Number four, the humble woman is characterized by biblical praying, and a great deal of it. The humble woman sees herself totally dependent on God. John Owen once said, We can have no power from Christ unless we live in a persuasion that we have none of our own. The humble woman is overwhelmed with God's undeserved grace and goodness. She's thankful and grateful in general toward others. Number seven, she's gentle and she's patient. Humble people are not easily irritated. They're willing to wait and they're not focused on getting what they want. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The humble woman is characterized as seeing herself as no better than others. Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The humble woman has an accurate view of her gifts and abilities. Number 10, she's a good listener. James 1, 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Number 11, the humble woman talks about others only if it is good or for their good. Twelve, she's gladly submissive and obedient to those in authority. Number thirteen, she prefers others over herself. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 10. Number 14, the humble woman is characterized by being thankful for criticism or reproof. She has a teachable spirit. Humility means that I realize that I don't know everything. Number 16, the humble woman always seeks to build others up. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace. To those who hear. The humble woman is characterized by serving. Number 18, she has a quickness in admitting when she's wrong. And then she has a quickness in granting and asking for forgiveness. The humble woman sees repenting of sin as a way of life. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. She minimizes others' sins and shortcomings in comparison to her own. She is genuinely glad for others. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The humble woman is honest and open about who she is and where she needs to grow. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the last one on this list, the humble woman is characterized by possessing close relationships. So again, you're going to see this list pop up in your homework. So just take some time to honestly evaluate your own life. Um, I might encourage you maybe even to ask someone who's near you to take a look at it and get their feedback. That's not going to be easy, but it's good. So look up some of the verses, read, meditate on them, maybe even memorize a few of them, and ask the Lord to grow you in humility. All right, so we have seen what pride is and what it looks like in our lives, and we've seen what humility is, and we know what we need to do to put off the sin of pride and its manifestations and to change our mindset to put on humility. But how do we do that, right? If only it were as easy as putting off and putting on. <laughs> True change starts with repentance. <clears throat> so I highly recommend listening to John Anderson's recent sermon on Psalm 51. Okay, you can find it online. It's a two-part series called Psalm 51, Living Out Repentance and Faith. It's from June 13th and 20th of last summer, so 2021. And in the second part, John poses a question. He says, can you please the Lord? And then he says, here's the one thing you have that pleases the Lord, brokenness. So this is where we need to start with brokenness, right? Brokenness over our sin, that we have sinned against a holy God, and on our own, our best is nothing but filthy rags. All right, we're going to look at the book of James. So turn to James 4. <clears throat> James 4, we're going to start in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Number 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, without humility, there can never be true repentance and change. We must humble ourselves before God, and then we must walk in humbleness. Stuart Scott says, it takes humility to learn humility. So humility is not something we put on for a time, maybe when we've remembered to pray, or we're at church, or we feel like it. Humility is to be the very spirit of our life. It's to be who we are in all circumstances. If we're at church, if we're at home, if we're tired, if we're in pain, we should strive for humility to be our very nature. 
Andrew Murray says, this humility is not something that will come of itself, but that it must be made the object of special desire, prayer, faith, and practice. So let's talk about some practical ways that we can move from a self-grasping life to a God-focused life. All right, humble yourself with the gospel. What's the gospel? We should be very familiar with this by now. The good news that God saved you from what you deserved, not because you deserved it or did anything good to merit it. So take some time to regularly reflect on the cross and on Christ and on what he did there for you. Carl Henry says, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? So go stand beside the cross. Number two, pray for God to search your heart, to help you repent of pride and to grow in humility. Every day, we need to do this continually, sometimes more than once a day. Psalm 139, the last two verses are a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Make that your prayer. The next one is you can study Jesus's humility, right? He's the greatest example. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, at the end, he says, Come to me, all who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe uh, this next one's a little harder. Ask others around you if they see a prideful attitude in your life. Maybe ask someone close to you to look over your self-evaluation and give you some feedback. It's a good time to remember that pride is often blinding. Um, Paul Tripp, when talking about pride, says, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. Without others around us, we'll believe our own lies and our own deceptions. And we will be, as Proverbs 12:15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. We need to seek out that advice. The next one, spend focus time on worshiping God, right? Focus on the cross. Focus on God's love displayed. Praise God. Pray. Read the word. Meditate on it. Study the attributes of God. Study God's immensity and his purity. Andrew Murray again says, It is the soul occupied with God in his wonderful glory as creator and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. We want our souls to be occupied with God. Number six, practice the one another. So remember Eric Martin's lesson from not that long ago? This is where this test of humility comes out. In our seemingly insignificant tests of life, that's when loneliness of self can be seen. Be aware of your thoughts and motives and strive to put off pride there. Study yourself. Compare it to scripture. Does it line up? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, <clears throat> have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So we want to turn off those thoughts of self-inflation and preach truth to ourselves. Be aware of your words and strive to put off pride there. What do your words reveal about your heart? Remember, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Luke 6.45. So are your words encouraging and building up? Are they others-focused? Or are they tearing down and self-focused? Be aware of your actions and strive to put off pride there too. How do you spend your time, your money, your energy? Is it on yourself or is it on others? Is it on ways that honor the Lord or ways that honor yourself? Again, Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. John MacArthur says, humility creates the vacuum that divine grace fills. So when we view ourselves rightly, only then will we shine with God's glory. And lastly, we must have the mindset that humility is a way of life. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, <clears throat> holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So here in Colossians, this putting on 
that's being spoken of, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like I put on a hat, right? Pride doesn't just die once. It has to die daily. And it's quite clear that without humility, we cannot be the Christians that God has called us to be. Remember James 4, 6, it says, God opposes the proud. God will deal with our pride if we will not. And that's because he loves us and he made us to bring him glory. So I don't know about you, but I feel like we covered a lot today. But I'll let you know, we haven't even scratched the surface on the study of pride and humility. Um, We could be here all day if we had tried to. Um, But if you're interested in studying more for yourself, if you feel like this has kind of whet your appetite and you, you want to study more, I'm going to share a few suggestions with you. So first, start with the Word of God, right? (laughs) That's the best place to go to study our sin and how we need to change. So I suggest, this is something I did, maybe pick a highlighter or a pen color, and as you're doing your daily Bible reading, just highlight or make note of where you see dangers of pride or virtues of humility. Maybe look at areas like the Beatitudes. In Matthew, it's where Jesus talks about meekness study people in the Bible, maybe people who displayed humility like Jesus or Mary or Paul, or maybe study people who didn't display humility but lived a life of pride like Nebuchadnezzar or Jezebel or Judas. Um, And then there's also some other resources that are readily available. These are things I used to help prepare this lesson today, and I thought I wanted to share them with you. Um, It's where most of my quotes came from. Um, This book Humility by Andrew Murray. It's so short. It's totally readable, but you can really only get a page or two in and you got to put it down and then pray. It's really, really good. Um, The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. The whole book is great, but particularly chapter 11, if you're interested in studying about pride and humility. Um, Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. This is the one I talked about. Um, This whole book is wonderful, but um, again, chapter 11. Um, is where he talks about pride. Um, And then this is the book that I used by Stuart Scott. Look at how tiny it is. You can totally read that. Um, I know these are for sale out there on on the bookshelf. Um, Written by Stuart Scott. Really, Again, you read like a page or two and you got to put it down. So um, to close, I'm going to read a stanza from this hymn. I wasn't familiar with this hymn and I came across it and just thought it was so neat. So I'm going to read, not sing, read um, one stanza from this hymn, and then I'm going to pray. Oh, to be emptier, lowlier, mean, unnoticed, and unknown, and to God a vessel holier, filled with Christ and Christ alone. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your word that is so full of truth that we need to study, to know, how to be filled with you, how to live a life that shows us as a Christ magnifier. Father, I pray that we would live lives that when people see us, they don't see ourselves, they see us reflecting you because we belong to you and we are your children and you have created us for this purpose of bringing you glory and we can only do that when we put off pride and put on humility. God, I pray that we would be women who shine for you in a very dark world, that we would show your love through how we prefer others and love others more than ourselves, that we would serve with this lowly mindset, always emulating Christ. He is our greatest example. Father, thank you for giving us access to your word. I pray that we do not take it for granted, that we do not grow apathetic to the joy that we can have by being in your word on a regular basis. Change us, make us more like you. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.